Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of Thy Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which Thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you want to go ahead and try and find a seat, we apologize for the setup today. This is, of course, not the way the Rector's Forum will be set up normally, but today we have a, a luncheon after church, and it just made it a whole lot easier for the Sextons who are being run ragged this weekend to have it set up this way. If we need extra chairs, Ben is in the back, and he's prepared to bring out extra seating. So just try and find a, a seat. There's some seats up here in the front uh, in Sinner's Row up here in the front, so actually every row is sinner's row, isn't it? So just pick a seat and make yourselves comfortable. Well, if you have your Bibles, and let me say as I always do that I encourage you to bring your Bibles to church with you. There's no shame in that. It's a thrilling thing to see. So uh, bring your Bibles with you because this is, is of course a Bible study and that's just the one essential piece of equipment. We're going to begin a study today of a portion, at least, of the last book of the Bible, so it's not a hard book to find. So if you just go to the end, the very last book, we're going to go ahead and read through the first three verses of the book of Revelation, and then we're going to begin to take a closer look at this extraordinary book. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Um, somebody came up to me right before this class and said that they were excited because they have never done a study of the book of Revelation. Well, I'm anxious because I've never taught the book of Revelation. <laughs> so this is going to be a very interesting experience. Now, that's not to say I've never read the book of Revelation or studied the book of Revelation, but it does mean that I have never taught the book of Revelation, and there's a very good reason for that. This is a difficult, this is a controversial book to say the least. Uh, I think there's a large number of people here for no other reason because you're curious as to what this book is really all about. And I approach it with a certain degree of fear and trembling. And when I think about the book of Revelation, I'm reminded of something that Winston Churchill once said about the former Soviet Union. Churchill said this, he said, Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And many people would say that is an apt description of the book of Revelation as well. There is a sense in which it is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Uh, back in the early part of the 20th century, there was a volume that came out. It was written by a man named Ambrose Bierce. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Ambrose Bierce was, he was a veteran of the Civil War. He had been severely wounded at the Battle of Shiloh, suffered some brain trauma. It didn't affect his mental capacity, his intellectual capacity, I should say, but it did affect his temperament. And uh, after the war, he became a newspaper man. He became a famous writer, wrote a series of articles for a number of magazines. But what he really became known for was satire. 
Uh, you may be familiar with his short stories. Wrote a wonderful, very interesting short story called The Strange Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. If you've never read that, let me suggest to you, you go home this afternoon, you could probably pull it up, The Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. It is a shocker. You will not see the end coming, and you can read the whole thing in about 20 minutes. But it's one of the best short stories in American literature. So I encourage you to go home and, and dig that out. Uh, but one of the things that he wrote was a whole series of satirical articles that appeared in periodicals and newspapers. And in 1911, they were eventually collected into a single volume, which was published under the title, The Devil's Dictionary. And in The Devil's Dictionary, he provided a whole series of tongue-in-cheek definitions of various cultural terms and icons. And one of the terms that he defined in the Devil's Dictionary, in this book of satire, was the book of Revelation. And this was his definition of Revelation. Revelation, noun, a book about the future in which St. John the Divine concealed all that he ever knew. The revealing is done by commentators who profess to know much, but in fact know nothing at all. Well, that's not exactly true. Uh, John, in this book, did not actually conceal all that he ever knew. In fact, he was commanded to do just the opposite. We're going to see here in the book of Revelation that there are a number of echoes of an Old Testament book called Daniel, which is a very similar type of literature, and we'll get to that in a moment. And in Daniel's great prophecy that was given to him, he was told to seal up what was revealed to him in that book until the appropriate time. John, on the other hand, is told that he is not to seal up what is written in this book. He is to do just the opposite. He is to unseal what he has seen. He is to promote it. He is to make it known. Revelation chapter 22 says, do not seal up the words of this book. In fact, Revelation chapter 1, some of the verses we just read a moment ago make it very clear that there is a blessing upon those who read this book. Verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So we are not supposed to ignore the book of Revelation. We are not supposed to seal it up. We are, in fact, supposed to approach it. But we have to approach it, as I said, with a certain degree of fear and trembling. And the reason for that is this is a very difficult book. It is difficult, and we need to approach it with a high degree of humility. Three people throughout the ages have struggled with the book of Revelation. St. Jerome, uh, who you probably know translated the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate, said this about the book of Revelation. He said, the revelation of John contains as many secrets as words. Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer, the man who was responsible for, the great, for reclaiming the great doctrine of justification by grace through faith, didn't like the book of Revelation. Now, actually, there were a number of books that Martin Luther didn't like, but this was one of them. He said, my spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. There is one sufficient reason for the small esteem in which I hold it. Jesus Christ is neither proclaimed or recognized in it. Just goes to show us that even blind men can sometimes have blind spots, great men. Ulrich Zwingli was another one of the great Protestant reformers. He didn't like the book of Revelation either. He said, Revelation is not a biblical book. So what do we do with a book like that? 
a book that is so thorny, so difficult. Some people might say, well, you probably ought not to go there. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. It's probably best just to leave it alone. I've been in the ministry for over 25 years, and I've left it alone. I've been anxious about teaching the book of Revelation because it is so thorny, it is so troublesome, it is so difficult and so controversial. So the question remains, why should we study the book of Revelation? I want to suggest to you two reasons today. The first reason is because we cannot escape the book of Revelation, no matter how we try. It is the one book that has become part of our popular culture. Everywhere we turn today, you will find, whether you recognize it or not, references that are lifted directly from this last book of the Bible. We speak, for example, of a new millennium. How many of you remember Y2K just a few years back when everybody thought that every computer in the world was going to crash and we were going to go into some sort of global meltdown because we were entering the new millennium? Well, that expression, the new millennium, is lifted right from the book of Revelation, a thousand-year reign of peace referred to in this last book of the Bible. How many of you have ever heard the expression, the four horsemen of the apocalypse? How many of you have ever heard of the mysterious number 666? All of these things are lifted from the book of Revelation, and they are part of our popular culture. When I was a little boy growing up in the 1970s in western Pennsylvania, it was not uncommon for the Pittsburgh Steelers to be playing the Dallas Cowboys. Those were the glory days of NFL football, by the way. And it was not unusual at a football game, particularly at a Super Bowl, to see somebody hang out a sign or hang out a sheet that said John 3.16 on it. Now in those days, most people, believe it or not, knew what John 3.16 was all about. Even if they didn't know the words, they at least knew that that was a reference to something in the Bible and probably one of the Gospels. Because people had at least some knowledge of the Holy Scriptures. I would be willing to wager somebody $20 that you could go up on the corner of King and Calhoun today and ask any student at the College of Charleston what John 3.16 is, and they probably would not have a clue. We are living in a very different time. We are living in a period in history in which access to the Bible, at least in Western culture here in the United States, is greater than at any other point. And yet our knowledge of the Holy Scriptures is at an all-time low. We are not a biblically literate culture. Now, that wasn't always the case in American history. When Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address in November of 1863, he spoke of a new birth of freedom. And everybody in the audience that day, from the very educated to the very ignorant, knew exactly what he was alluding to. That was, a, that was an allusion to the biblical doctrine of the new birth. In John 3, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Everybody knew that that's what Lincoln was alluding to, a new birth. Everybody knew what that was. That is no longer the case today. People just don't have a knowledge of the scripture. You can make references, passing references to various portions of the Bible and people haven't a clue as to what you're talking about. The one exception to that, the one exception to that seems to be the book of Revelation. There are lots of allusions in our culture, particularly in our popular culture, and I'm just going to show you a few here on the screen. Because we're a media culture, let me just highlight some of the media references. 
Back when I was in high school, there was a movie that came out starring every young boy's heartthrob, Demi Moore. And that, book was in, that movie was entitled The Seventh Sign. Well, The Seventh Sign was a direct reference to the book of Revelation. It's about the end times. Some years before that, the famous Swedish director did a movie called The Seventh Seal, Ingmar Bergman. Likewise, about the book of Revelation, that was in the 1950s. More recently, there's a movie coming out that came out starring Bruce Willis entitled Armageddon. That's a reference to the great battle in Revelation chapter 16 between the forces of good and the forces of evil in which the forces of good, the forces of God, ultimately triumph. Clint Eastwood came out with a Western a few years ago. He directed and starred in it called The Pale Rider. Pale Rider is a direct reference to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The movie, one of the opening scenes in the movie begins with a young girl quoting from the book of Revelation. And behold, I saw a pale horse and the rider on it. And death and hell followed after him. Direct reference to the book of Revelation. There was the Vietnam movie, Apocalypse Now, that came out. The word apocalypse is the equivalent of the word revelation, as we're going to see. Some old translations do not call this the revelation of John. They refer to it as the apocalypse of John. That's where this comes from, the title. Apocalypse Now comes from the last book of the Bible. And just before he died, in one of the last albums, perhaps the last album that he released, Johnny Cash, the title of the album was When the Man Comes Around. And it was all about the return of Christ at the end of the age. A man's coming around taking names. And he knows who to bless and who to blame. I have on my shelf a commentary, one of the newer commentaries on the book of Revelation by a professor from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. His name is G.K. Beals. That volume has over 1,000 pages in it. And at the back of it, there is what he calls a select bibliography. Now, it's a select bibliography. Why? Because he's not including everything that he's read or is aware of when it comes to periodicals and articles and, and commentaries on the book of Revelation. But in that select bibliography alone, there are, if you can believe it, no less than 852 items. And he calls that a select bibliography. More has been written about the book of Revelation than any other single book of the Bible. I don't know about you, but I find that to be absolutely extraordinary. More written about the book of Revelation than the epistle to the Romans. Now, most scholars consider Romans to be the greatest of Paul's writings, and many people consider, and I think they're right, that Paul was the greatest theologian in the history of the church. I mean, lots of great people were converted through the reading of the Epistle to the Romans. St. Augustine was converted. Martin Luther was converted. John Wesley was converted through the reading of the Epistle to the Romans. And yet there's been more written about Revelation than Romans, or Galatians, or Isaiah, or the book of Genesis, or the Gospel of John with its high-soaring Christology. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. More written about this one book than any other. So when people say, well, if it's such a difficult book, why should we study it? We study it because it has become part of our culture. We cannot escape it. 
But the real reason to study the book of Revelation is not because its images and its themes have become a part of our culture. The real reason to study the book of Revelation is because it is a part of the Bible. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in his second letter to Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for training, and for correcting in righteousness so that the men and the women of God may be complete for every good work. So that's why we are studying the book of Revelation, not because it's become part of our culture, although that is important, but because it is a part of God's Word. And indeed, we see here in this first chapter again that a blessing is pronounced on those who do read it, who do study it, and who do keep what is written in it. Now, having said that, it is still difficult. And we need to recognize that as we go into it. I say I come with a, fear of, a great deal of fear and trembling because many people think they understand the book of Revelation. And anybody that thinks they do probably doesn't. Probably doesn't. It's not easy because one of the things you need to recognize about the Bible is that the Bible is not just a single book. I like to say that the Bible is more a library than it is a book. Now, we believe that the Bible has one author, that is to say God, the Holy Spirit, and it has one theme running through from Genesis the whole way through to the end, the book of Revelation, and that is the redeeming work of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So it is a volume that has one author and one theme, but it has many different writers. Now, we believe that God the Holy Spirit so superintended the process that whatever those people wrote ultimately became the Word of God. But nevertheless, we have many different writers and many different types of literature. You know this to be true. There's history in the Bible. You've got that, for example, in the book of Acts, where you have an account of the history of the early church from the time of Pentecost through the ministries of the apostles Peter and Paul. And Luke is a superb historian. But you've got poetry in the Bible as well. That's primarily what the book of Psalms is. It is a word from the Lord, absolutely, but it is nevertheless poetry, poetry oftentimes of the highest form. There's wisdom literature there. You have the Song of Solomon. You have the book of Proverbs. You have letters, the epistles of Paul, the writings of Peter and James, the epistle to the Hebrews. You have all kinds of literature, and anybody who's ever studied literature will tell you that if you're going to interpret it properly, you need to understand what kind it is, what type it is. The technical term for this is genre. Uh, it is a French word that has come into biblical studies, and that's what it means. It means type. If you're going to interpret something properly, you need to understand the genre. You need to understand the type. Now, generally, this is not a difficult thing for us to do. Uh, we know what a gospel is. They're not technically this, but they're close to it. The gospels are like biographies. They're the stories of Jesus' life and ministry, and we know what biographies are. So when we see a gospel, we recognize it for what it is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the story, it's the account of Jesus' life and work. We know what an epistle is. Why? Because we're familiar with letters. Even if we're only familiar with email, we know what a letter is. And so we're not surprised when we encounter an epistle. We, we recognize that for what it is. 
The same thing is true when it comes to the Psalms. We know what the Psalms are because we're familiar with poetry. And we understand what the Acts of the Apostles are all about because we are a people who have studied history. The problem with Revelation and determining the genre, determining the type of literature that Revelation is, is that Revelation is actually three things at the same time. It's three things at once. To begin with, it is a letter. That comes in as early as verse 4. We read John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So John is writing a letter to seven churches in the province of Asia, the Roman province of Asia, seven churches, incidentally, that actually existed at the time that he was writing. So the book of Revelation is a letter. But it's also a prophecy. That comes in even earlier. In verse 3 we read, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That was John's own designation for this book. He called it a prophecy. But it's a third type of literature as well. It's a letter, it's a prophecy, but it is also a unique type of literature that was common in the two centuries before Jesus Christ and for one century after. A particular type of Jewish literature that oftentimes grew up in times of intense persecution. And that type of literature is known as apocalyptic literature. If you want to put some names and dates on this time period, it would be from the persecution of the Jews under Antiochus Epiphanes around 167 BC to the destruction of the Jewish nation under the Emperor Hadrian sometime around the year 135 AD. As I said, it developed during times of intense persecution. If we're going to understand the book of Revelation, we need to understand these three types of literature. We just can't jump into this book. We have to understand what kind of a book it is. So one of the things we're going to do here in these opening lectures is just sort of lay the foundation for you so that as we dive into this, we can understand it in a better way. So let's take a look first at Apocalypse. Apocalyptic literature is the most unfamiliar to us, so let's take a look at it. The word apocalypse comes from two Greek words. The first is apo, and the second is calypse. Apo means to take away, to remove. Calypse means a veil. So if you take something away, you take a veil away, you do what? You unveil it. So that's what the word apocalypse means. It means an unveiling. The Latin form of that is Revelation. So that's why the book is called Revelation. Some of you, if you're reading out of the King James Version of the Bible, you may notice on the title page it is referred to not as the Revelation to John, but as the Apocalypse of John. It means the same thing. That's what the word apocalypse means. It means an unveiling. Apocalyptic literature is characterized by a number of things. First of all, it's characterized by symbols and images, the kinds of symbols and images that you might encounter in a dream. You ever had a dream in which you wake up and you think to yourself, what was that all about? Well, apocalyptic literature is oftentimes characterized by symbols and images, many of them the kind which you would encounter in a dream. The chief theme of apocalyptic literature, this unique type of literature that existed for about those 300 years or plus, the chief theme is the struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil on a cosmic scale. 
So that's what apocalyptic literature is all about. Apocalyptic literature oftentimes contains angelic guides or interpreters that help the author to understand what he is seeing, what he is experiencing, what the vision is. Apocalyptic literature often employs the use of symbolic numbers like 666, but also the number 7. We're going to see the number 7. Almost everything in the book of Revelation comes to us in sevens. A typical type of apocalyptic literature from this time period is the Jewish book of Enoch, written about 100 B.C., which one person described as one of the six worst books ever written. <laughs> well, what's interesting about this book, the book of Revelation, is that it employs every single one of these unique apocalyptic devices. What is also interesting, though, is that that title for this type of genre comes from this particular book. In other words, the genre of literature existed beforehand, but Revelation wasn't named apocalyptic literature because of these other works. These other works were named apocalyptic as a result of this book. So that's what apocalyptic literature is, and Revelation is a classic form of that. But we said that Revelation is also a prophecy. Now, what's a prophecy? We said this is how the author identifies the book in verse 3. It puts Revelation in the same categories as the Old Testament books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, but also Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all the minor prophets as well. So it's a classic form of prophecy. What does prophecy do? Well, most people think that prophecy foretells the future. And there's no question about that. Prophetic works are designed or intended to foretell the future. But that's not the only thing they do, or for that matter, the most important thing that a prophetic work does. A prophetic work in the Bible primarily speaks to the present on the basis of what is to come, and on the basis of what is to come calls the present to repentance, change of life and renewal. So that's what a prophet really does. The prophet says, here is what is going to happen, and on the basis of what is going to happen, you need to repent. Now, that's one of the reasons why John the Baptist was a classic prophet. He's oftentimes referred to as the last of the Old Testament prophets, because what did John do? He went out into the Judean wilderness, and he proclaimed the message that the kingdom of God had arrived. And he called the people to do what? To repent. Because the king had come, or the king was coming, on that basis, now was the day when people needed to repent because the king was coming. And then, of course, you know, he pointed out the king. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's what a prophetic work is designed to do. It's not simply to tell the future. It has implications and application for the present. On the basis of what is going to happen we call people to repentance in the here and now. They speak to the present in light of what is to come and call for repentance, changes in faith and lifestyle. And clearly that is what John is doing in the seven letters to the seven churches that we are going to take a closer look at. So that's what a prophecy is, and Revelation is a prophecy as well. But it's a third thing. Revelation is a letter. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. It is a classic first century letter. It begins as first century letters do, and it ends just as first century letters end. 
There is a customary greeting, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. The author identifies himself. This is something that is unique among first century writing, very different from what we do in the 21st century. When you write a letter, you address the person at the beginning, and then you sign your name where? At the end. But in first century literature, the sender identified himself at the beginning, and oftentimes established his credentials. And John does that. The recipients are named. He tells us who this letter is being sent to, to the seven churches that are in Asia, seven churches that, as I said, actually existed at the time. Greetings are given, grace to you, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is exactly the same pattern, incidentally, that you find in Paul's writings in Romans chapter 1. So if you will, just keep your finger there in Revelation for just a moment and skip back to Romans just for a second so you can see how Paul begins. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 begins this way, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. So there is the sender designating himself at the very beginning, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 7, to all those who are in Rome, they are the recipients. Here's the greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the same pattern, the beginning of Revelation, that you find in Paul's epistle to the Romans. And what is interesting, you skip ahead to the last chapter of this book, to chapter 22, and you will discover that it ends as a letter. So when you ask the question, what kind of genre is it? Well, it's not a single genre. And that's one of the things that makes studying the book of Revelation so exciting, but at the same time, so challenging. Professor G.K. Beale, whose commentary I mentioned a moment ago, whose bibliography had 852 separate items, he said this. He said, Revelation is a prophecy cast in an apocalyptic mold and written down in letter form. If you want to know what the book of Revelation is, that's what it is. Revelation is a prophecy cast in an apocalyptic mold and written down in letter form. And yet, as Professor J. Ramsey Michael put it, another great New Testament scholar, he said, if it is a letter, it is unlike any other Christian letter we possess. If it's an apocalypse, it's unlike any other apocalypse. And if it's a prophecy, it is unique among prophecies. Now, how many of you think that that will make the book of Revelation confusing enough? <laughs> well, I got some bad news for you. It only gets worse. <laughs> One of the reasons it gets even more difficult is the language that is employed right here at the beginning of the book. Let me read those words again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, John was writing in the first century to seven churches that actually existed, and he's writing about things that he says must what? Soon take place. And he goes on to repeat that. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The time is soon. The time is near. 
Well, how much time has passed since John wrote those words? Nearly 2,000 years. Soon? Near? What are we supposed to do with words like that? How are we supposed to understand what John was trying to convey? Now, somebody might say, well, yes, but we all know that to the Lord a day is like a thousand years. Well, sure, but we have to remember that apocalyptic literature was written to people who were under persecution. They were told to read these words and be encouraged by them. It would have been no encouragement to them if the events that are being described were going to happen thousands of years in the future. There is meant to be application for their life in the here and now. This word was written as an encouragement to them. So what do we do with this kind of a language? Well, the result is that over the years, over the centuries, four different schools of interpretation when it comes to the book of Revelation have developed. We're going to take a look briefly at all four of them. The four views are the historicist view, the preterist view, the futurist view, and what is known as the symbolic or idealist or timeless view. So let's take a look at the first, the historicist view. Historicist comes from the word history, of course. It means the unfolding of history. The historicists argue that the book of Revelation is, for the most part, a pre-written history of the world from the time of the author, that is, from the time of John, down to the last days. Christ returns in glory. Uh, this is the dominant view of most Protestant churches since the time of the Reformation. Uh, most mainline Protestant denominations before they lost their confidence in the scriptures in particular. This view holds that the bulls, the signs, the seals, all of those symbols in the book of Revelation actually correspond to the unfolding events in human history, many of which have already taken place over the course of the previous 1900 years. Historicists say that in the book of Revelation, you will find such events as the Christianization of the Roman Empire, the attack on the Western Empire by the Gauls and the Vandals, the founding of the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne, the corruption of the medieval papacy, the rise of the Protestant Reformation, the age of Napoleon, the rise of Nazi fascism, and in more recent times, the rise and the collapse of the former Soviet Union. Now, that's the historicist view. What's the advantage of the historicist view to reading the book of Revelation in that way? Well, it takes seriously this idea that God is the Lord of history. And as Christians, we should take seriously the idea that God is the Lord of history. What we believe is that God is working out His purposes in time and space. Now, this is one of the things that was so discouraging about the Apostle Paul. Those of you who went with me to Greece in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, one of the places that we visited was Athens, and we went there to Mars Hill, and we talked about how Paul contended with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Paul found the Athenians, in spite of their great reputation, in spite of the fact that this was supposed to be the intellectual center of the ancient world, Paul found the Athenians to be very depressing. Why? Because they really thought that life was meaningless. The Athenians had a very dismal view of history. They believed that history was like a carnival barker's wheel of fortune. Round and round and round she goes, and where she stops, nobody knows. Everything is cyclical. You've heard me say this before. It's like the seasons of the year. Spring turns into summer. Summer turns into autumn. Autumn turns into winter. But then winter does what? Turns into spring again. And the whole thing just goes on and on and on. Henry Ford had a very dismal view of history. 
Uh, he got into a, a very expensive trial on one occasion. Somebody was suing him. And they said, what, is it, what do you think history's going to say about you? Reporter asked him when he came out of the courtroom, and he said, history is bunk. It's just the succession of one damn thing after another. Well, that's the way many people looked at history. And that's exactly how the Greeks, history has no value, no purpose. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because tomorrow you die. That's what the Epicureans believed. And the Stoics said, stuff happens, so stiff upper lip. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just press on, make the best of it. Paul found both of those people to be very depressing because he knew God was at work in history. God was working out his purposes in history, and all the flow of history was moving ultimately toward a grand and glorious climax when Christ would come again and set the world right, and there would be a new heaven and a new earth. So the value of the historicist's view is that it does take seriously God at work in history. But as we're going to see with each one of these four views, while there are advantages to the view, there are problems with the view. And there are problems with the historicist view of Revelation as well. What's the problem with the historicist view? Well, the primary problem with the historicist view is its subjectivity. The proponents of the historicist view ultimately and inevitably see this book reaching its culmination in their own time. In other words, there's a reference here in the book of Revelation to a red dragon. Now, what do you think most people today think that red dragon is? I got two, 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 two answers, and, and, and they're both correct. I'm looking for both of them. Most people would say, it's China. Now, why would you say it's China? Well, because, you know, the Chinese use the dragon and red represents communism. So obviously, when you're reading through the book of Revelation in our day and age, that's a reference to China. And we're engaged in this terrible trade war with China. And, and, and China's got this large economy, and China's going to take over the world. And when China sneezes, we all catch the cold, and so on and so forth. But what is interesting is that 20 years ago, if you had asked people, what is the red dragon, they would not have said China. They would have said the Soviet Union. <laughs> See, whatever stage you live in in history, you see this book reaching its ultimate combination what? In your own time. So that's one of the problems with the historicist view. The other problem with the historicist view is that it fails to take into consideration the fact that God is actually at work in all of history and in all the world. And that whole list of historical events that I just mentioned, you'll notice that they all take place where? In the West. There's almost no consideration of what God might have been doing over the course of the past 1900 years in places like Asia or South America or elsewhere. So that's the historicist view. What's the second view of interpretation? It's the preterist view. It comes from the Latin verb to go before, praetar, to go before. Now, the preterists take seriously the language that we find here in this opening chapter, particularly the language of soon and near. They said if John said that these events were soon going to take place or that the time was near, then he must have meant it. They take seriously what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel when he said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until what? All of these things are fulfilled. How many of you have ever wondered what Jesus meant by that? It's one of the first questions I'm going to ask him, incidentally, when I get there. 
Preterists take seriously the idea that when Jesus said that, he meant it. That when John said it, he meant it. They recognize that the book of Revelation is written for us, that is, for our benefit, but it was not written to us. Now that is a very important thing whenever you approach any book of the Bible, particularly something like Paul's letters. We recognize that when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, his two letters, those letters have value and significance for your life and for mine. They are the word of the Lord, and they speak across time and space to us right here and now. But we have to remember that the epistles to the Corinthians were not written what? To us. They were written to the Corinthians to address specific problems. Now, as I said, they may have universal application, but they were written specifically to the Corinthians. When we study the book of Revelation, the preterists say we have to remember that this letter, this prophecy, this apocalyptic work was written to the churches in Asia, first century churches. And therefore, when John said these things will soon take place or the time is near, he meant it for them. The preterist holds that all of the events described in the book of Revelation were going to take place soon and, in fact, have already taken place. Everything described in the book of Revelation, the preterist says, has already taken place. They find their ultimate culmination in what? In the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the end of the sacrificial system when the Romans came in under Titus and sacked the city and put over 100,000 people to the sword. So the preterists say that's where this book finds its ultimate fulfillment. It's not to say that it doesn't have application for us today, but when the events are described as happening soon, all those bulls, symbols, seals, they are describing what would happen. Had not yet happened at the time that John wrote, but did happen shortly thereafter in the year 70 A.D. with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Now, what's the advantage of this view? The advantage of this view, of course, is that they take seriously the language. They recognize the first century audience. What's the problem with it? Well, if the preterists are right, there is no future application. It means that the book was primarily for the original audience, but not necessarily for us. The other problem with it, and I think this is the more serious, is that in Revelation chapter 20, there is a reference to a great battle that will take place in which good will triumph over evil. Well, if the preterists are right and the words of this book find their ultimate fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., then that battle never took place because the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D. was not the triumph of good over evil, but the triumph of evil over good. So that's the preterist view. There's another view, the futurist view. This is the view that is held by most dispensationalists today. I'm going to go quickly through it because we're going to come back and look at these things uh, again. The futurist view holds that all of the events described in the book of Revelation describe events that have not yet happened, that will happen in the future, in the days just prior to the Lord's return in glory. Those who subscribe to a futurist view generally take the words of the prophecy in this book more literally than others. But of course it's easy for them to do so because there's no way to falsify their view because the events haven't happened yet. 
These chapters are understood to teach the restoration of ethnic Israel to its own land, the rapture of the church, a seven-year tribulation appearance, the appearance of the Antichrist, the battle of Armageddon, Christ's return in glory, the millennium reign of peace, and the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. This was a view that became very popularized just a few years ago by a series of books by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins entitled The Left Behind series. Now, what's the problem with this view? Well, there are a number of problems with this view. First of all, as I said, it takes the prophecies more literally than the other views, but it's easy for them to do that. The other reason is this. If all of these events are described in the future, then there was no real application for the original audience. And as I've already pointed out, that original audience was meant to read these books, be blessed by these books, and to be encouraged by this book. If all of these events were thousands of years in the future, that's not much encouragement to the original audience. Here's the final view, the symbolic or idealist view. Those who subscribe to the symbolic or idealist view basically say that Revelation doesn't describe past or future events. Instead, the symbols here in this book describe transcendent spiritual realities that apply to every age and every Christian. In other words, what you have described in the book of Revelation is not a past event or a future event, it's the present in, sense, in the sense that we are all engaged in a great battle between the forces of good and evil. The continuing conflict between Christ and Satan. Now what's the strength of this position? The strength of this position lies in two areas. We know that symbols are used extensively in the book of Revelation. Everybody knows that. And the other strength of the position is that it appears to have universal application. It would not only apply to those in the first century, it would apply to those in the 21st century and in the 22nd and 23rd century. But again, it has assets, it has liabilities. What's the problem with the idealistic view? The primary weakness of the idealist view is that it denies the book any specific historical fulfillment and it sees no consummation whatsoever of the historical process. Now all four of those schools of interpretation have been with us for a very long time. And as a result, many people have become hardened into their position. Many people would say, well, you just got to pick one of these. None of them is perfect, but you got to pick one and you got to stick with it. You got to be a preterist or a historicist or an idealist or you got to be a futurist. You got to be one or the other. Well, I don't think we have to be that discouraged or that negative. What I want to suggest to you is a fifth approach to the book of Revelation. But if you want to know what it is, you have to come back next week. <laughs> In the meantime, the hour cometh and now is for us to get to church. So let us close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the book of Revelation. It is your word to us. And it does have value and significance for our lives. But it is a thorny book. It is a difficult book. It is a controversial book. And so we come to you, Lord, humbly, begging for the grace of your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts that we might understand and understanding might apply it to our lives that we might live 
the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.